You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats as we're doing that. Middle school class, you are dismissed. Middle school class meets right down the stairs here over to your left every Sunday morning after worship. Those of you staying in here with us, would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, second book of the Bible. If you need a Bible so you can follow along, go ahead and put your hand in the air. We'll make sure one of our ushers gets you one so you can track with us. We go verse by verse through the scriptures. And um, the other thing you can do is you can follow along on a phone app. If you use your phone to read the Bible, we recommend you use the YouVersion Bible app. And if you go in there and you go in the menu and you click on events, you'll find white fields. You'll find all the stuff that's on the screen, but you'll also find some extra stuff that you can follow along with and interact with. It's a great way to be involved in the sermon and get a little extra out of it. So this morning we're in Exodus chapter 32. We have been for quite some time now studying through the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings in our study which we have titled Be Set Free. We're coming really to the end of this book. We've only got two weeks left in this study after today. And then we're going to begin a new series right after Easter. But today we come to really one of the the most well-known stories in the book. It's one of the craziest stories. Like if you like stories in which people do really dumb stuff, then you're really going to like this story. But not only is it a crazy story, but it's also really one of the most wonderful stories, as you're going to see as we get to the end. It's really a a very uh, moving and, and special thing that we see in this text. So let's go ahead and begin this morning by reading Some of the texts, Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Come up, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people of Israel took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They made for themselves a golden calf, and they have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, leave me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. And then in verse 30, we continue. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now... If you will forgive their sin, or if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you 
for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is a word that speaks to us today. And we all come from different places this morning. We've had different things in our past week, and we have different things ahead of us. Lord, we pray that you would meet us in that place where we're at and that you'd speak to us. Give us ears to hear what your word is saying and how it applies to our lives. Lord, would you teach us? Would you train us? Would you challenge us? Would you comfort us and encourage us? All of the things that we need, Lord, you know where we're at and what we need. And we pray that you'd meet us in this place, speak to us by your spirit, and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So I came across this quote online last week, and it said, As fast as each opportunity presents itself, you should use it. No matter how tiny an opportunity it may be, always use it. That quote led me to another similar message, which said this, When opportunity presents itself, grab it, hold on tight, and don't let go. So I was reading that, and I thought, well, you know, this is pretty common advice. Like, this is what you often hear as advice about, you know, what to do when an opportunity presents itself. You should take it and grab hold of it. But here's the thing. That I'm not sure that that's really always good advice, right? Because there are thousands of opportunities that each of us have every single day. And what you do with those opportunities that you're presented with really shapes your life. Martin Luther King Jr., I think he had a much more uh, wise thing that he said about when opportunity presents itself. He said, one of the best ways to love your enemy is this. When the opportunity presents itself for you to harm them, you don't. That's one of the ways that you can love your enemy. In other words, he's saying uh, something very important, that not every opportunity that presents itself to you is a good one. Just because a door is open doesn't mean you have to walk through it. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do that thing. Sometimes opportunities present themselves, which actually put us to the test. They test our faith. They test our perseverance. They test our character. I've been reading The Lord of the Rings to my kids, and throughout the story, over and over, the different characters find themselves being put to the test in this way. They're on this quest, right, to destroy this ring and to save the world. But over and over, opportunity presents itself for them to give up, for them to turn back, for them to quit. And in one way, they would love to. I mean, in one way, it's the calling that they have, but in another way, it's very burdensome calling. And in every, everything within them wants to give up and go home and stop this. And so every opportunity that presents itself for them to stop or to quit or for somebody else to do it, it's extremely tempting to them. And there's one point at the end of The Two Towers, the second book, where Sam, who's Frodo, the main character's best friend, Sam says to him, you know, Mr. Frodo, it's like in the great stories. You know, the stories that really mattered. They were full of darkness and danger. But those stories stick with you. And I never used to understand why they stick with you. But now I think I know. It's because people in those stories, they had lots of opportunities to turn back and, they give, and, and give up, but they didn't. They kept going. And the reason they kept going was because they were holding on to something which was worth fighting for. In our text today, we see a scene in which several opportunities present themselves, which put people to the test in different, excuse me, in different ways. The title of today's message is, When Opportunity Presents Itself. And in this story, we're going to see three tests and one incredible act of love. So three tests and one incredible act of love. Here are the three tests that we see, and then we'll look at each of them as we go through. First of all, we see the test of patience. Secondly, we see the test of popularity. And thirdly, we see the test of fame. The test of patience, the test of popularity, the test of fame. Let's check it out and see what happened. First of all, the test of popularity. We begin this chapter by seeing uh, the setting is this. Moses has gone up on the mountain. That was the last time we saw him. 
In our study last week, we looked at chapters 25 through 31, which is basically what God told Moses while he was up on the mountain. But the last time we saw Moses down in the camp, he was heading up into the mountain in the end of chapter 24. Right? And here in chapter 32, now we're finding out, while Moses has been up on the mountain, what has been happening down in the valley with the camp and the rest of the people. Now, back in Exodus chapter 24, at the end of the chapter, the last time we saw Moses, this is what he was doing. He said, guys, I'm going up on the mountain to meet with God, and I'm putting Aaron in charge. So if anything happens, talk to Aaron. You're in good hands, right? Super good leadership there with Aaron. So then Moses says, all right, I'll be right back. And he heads up the mountain, and it says there in Exodus 24 that as he headed up the mountain, there was this cloud that had descended on the mountain. And it says this, the appearance of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So last time they saw Moses, he was walking up this hill into a storm with lightning and a devouring fire. And he stayed up there for 40 days. Now, 40 days doesn't sound like a long time unless it's a stopwatch on how long you can survive in a devouring fire, right? Like if one of your friends says to you, hey, I'll be right back, and then walks into a devouring fire, I mean, how long is it going to be before you say, I don't know if he's coming back. Like, that's a, that's a fire. So uh, one day goes by and people are looking up at the mountain and they say, hey, w- when did Moses come back? He hasn't come back. He's still up there. And then a couple days go by and then a week, and then two weeks, and then a month. I mean, how long do you think it took before somebody said, I don't want to be the one to be the first to say this, but guys, I don't think he's coming back. I mean, he's been up in that firestorm for quite a while now. He's definitely dead by now. And this presents the people with an opportunity. Because you see, they've been stopped here at this mountain for a long time, probably longer than they want to be, Because when they left Egypt, remember, this is not what they signed up for. They didn't sign up for living in tents in the desert, eating manna, and just hanging out, waiting for Moses all the time. No, they signed up to go to the promised land. And so here's Moses. Moses now out of the picture. And who knows if or when he will ever come back. And they're presented with an opportunity. And that's this. If the Lord isn't going to give them what they signed up for, which is the promised land, then we'll forget the Lord, we'll make our own gods and have our own gods do it for us. See, Moses would have never signed off on that, but Moses isn't here anymore, is he? So now Aaron's in charge, and well, we can probably talk Aaron into doing something like that. So here's the situation. The people have gotten impatient because things aren't moving forward. It feels like they're stuck. God isn't moving, at least not from their perspective. And I'm sure that many of you can relate to that. Maybe there's a situation in your life that feels similar to that, right? Maybe it's a situation at work and it just feels stuck. You've been praying about it and it just feels like it's not making any progress and you're wondering, what, what's going on here? I'm not happy about this. There's no progress being made. Maybe it's a, a medical condition that you've been praying about and things haven't changed. Maybe it's a relationship or a lack of relationship and time keeps ticking by and you wonder, how long am I supposed to just wait for something to happen, it feels like I'm stuck and it feels like God isn't moving. And there can be this temptation in times like that when God doesn't do what you wanted or expected or at least not in the time frame that you had hoped for, there can be this temptation to say, hey, this isn't what I signed up for. And, and so there are a couple different responses that we can tend to have when God delays, which is what we're seeing an example of here in our story. Or when things don't go the way that you expected them to go or the way that you hoped that they would go. Either it can deepen you or 
it can derail you. So there are different responses and they have these effects. They can deepen you or they can derail you. In James chapter 1, James says this. He says, don't despise the trials that come into your life because through those trials, your faith is being tested and the testing of your faith will result in steadfastness which will make you perfect and complete and lacking nothing. So these kinds of trials can have the effect of deepening you, deepening your resolve and your faith in God. But here's the other thing. They can also derail you. See, you can sometimes want something so badly that you're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. Even if that means doing something which goes against your own deeply held beliefs and convictions. Let me tell you a story. It's a story. He was an older man. His wife was a few years younger than him. She wasn't young by any stretch of the imagination, just a few years younger than him. They'd been married for many years by this point, but they'd never had any children. They'd always wanted children. I mean, that was their dream, to have children, but it had just never happened for them. And one day, God spoke to the husband, his name was Abraham, and he told him that him and his wife, Sarah, were going to have a baby. They were going to have a son, and that son, from that son would come a long line of descendants, including one which would be the one through whom God would bless the entire earth. And of course, they were ecstatic about this. They were excited. They were overjoyed at this news. And with great enthusiasm, they began to follow God and trust God. And they waited. And then they waited some more. And then they waited some more. And then a year passed by and still no child. And then another year passed by and still nothing. And you can imagine, maybe even some of you know exactly what this is like. You can imagine the disappointment and the frustration that they went through on a monthly basis. Until five years had gone by and they didn't have a child still. And by this point, Sarah is no longer physically able to even have children. And so they come up with a plan. Abraham could have a child with one of their servants. And that child would count technically as Abraham's child. Now this was completely unethical. I mean, they knew this. I mean, to force a, a servant to have your child, that's unethical. Not to mention having a child out of wedlock with someone who's not your spouse. But having a child, you see, that was the one thing in the world that they wanted more than anything else. And hey, if God's not going to give it to them, then maybe they just need to take matters into their own hands because this is what they want. They want to have a child. And of course, if you know the story, you know that this whole fiasco created a whole mess. Ultimately, he did have a child with his, um, with his servant girl, and God said, no, that's not the fulfillment that I promised you. And later on, they did have the child that God promised them, but they had this giant mess and all these consequences to deal with because of this time when they said, well, God's not doing it. We're just going to take matters into our own hands, and we're going to make it happen. Here in Exodus chapter 32 we see a very similar thing. God's not doing what the people want, or at least not when the people want it. And so they say, well, if God won't do it for us, then we'll do it ourselves. And they take matters into their own hands. And here in Exodus 32, they create an actual statue, like a golden idol. But here's the thing. Most of the time, idols aren't physical statues that people pray to and bow down to. Here's what an idol is. An idol can be anything that you or I look to to give us that which we can only really get from God. It's something that you place ultimate value in. It's something that you look to to give you the things that really only God can give you. Fulfillment, identity, value, love, purpose, hope. See, for Abraham and Sarah, you can say that having a child had become an idol. They thought, if only we had that, 
That's the thing we need. Then we would be fulfilled. Then we would really be somebody. Then our life would have value and purpose and meaning. But without that, I don't know if there's even any reason to live. Here's the thing about idols. They always promise a lot, but they always disappoint. They never come through on what they promise to give you. Let me give you a few ways to recognize things that might be becoming idols in your lives. One of the greatest ways, we see this here in, in both of these stories we're looking at. One of the greatest ways to recognize an idol in your life is it's something for which you are willing to compromise your own convictions and beliefs in order to get it. So if you're willing to compromise what you believe and go against your own ethics and morals, then you have to say, well, maybe that thing is an idol in my life. See, that's what happened with Abraham and Sarah. See, they considered themselves godly people, but here they found themselves doing something very unethical in order to get what they wanted because they had made an idol out of it in their heart. Maybe you're a person who would say, I would never lie. Lying is wrong. But let me ask you this. Have you ever found yourself lying? In spite of the fact that you believe that lying is wrong, have you ever felt, found yourself bending the truth because there was something that you wanted and that was how you could get it? I don't know what the idols are in your life, but I do know that we've all got them. Martin Luther famously said that the human heart is an idol factory. Basically, we have this this innate tendency to take good things and make them into ultimate things, to look to them, to give us the things that only God can, do it, can give us. Many of us do it with our careers. Many of us do it with family. Some of us do it with material things. Others of us do it with accomplishments. You look to those things to give you what only God can give you, and you make those things into the ultimate things in your life to the point where even in your relation to God, your, your main relation to God is How can God help me to get that thing? Whether it's a promotion or a relationship or whatever it is, you look to God primarily as useful to you to help you get those things that you really want. And when that's the case, it's easy to get to this point, which is where the people of Israel are at here, chapter 32, where you say, well, if God's not going to help me get what I want, then what good is he to me? Why do I need him if he's not going to help me get the things that I want? In other words, if he's no longer useful to me, then why do I need him at all? This is essentially what the people of Israel are doing here. If the Lord God isn't going to give them what they want, then they'll set him aside and they'll find some other God who will give them what they want. See, it's not that they really want God himself for who he is. It's that they want the things which they believe that God will give them. Now, I would encourage you to ask yourself this question. I think it's important for all of us to ask ourselves. Think about this. Do you primarily see God as useful or beautiful? Is the primary way you relate to God based on his usefulness to you, or is it based on the fact that you see him as beautiful? There's a really big difference between the two. You see, when you see God as beautiful, then you worship him for who he is. You seek him out. You want to serve him, not in order to get something from him, but simply because of who he is. A second indicator of an idol in your life is is it something for which if you didn't get it, you would be willing or at least tempted to forsake God. An indicator of an idol in your life is it's something that if you didn't get it, you'd be tempted to forsake God. You know, if you ask the average person today why they're skeptical about the Bible or about Christianity, most of the answers you'll get are not intellectual. They're personal. Most of the answers you'll get are personal. It'll be questions like, why did God allow this to happen? Why did God allow this thing to happen to me? Or, I really wanted this thing, I prayed for it, and then it didn't happen, and I'm disappointed. In other words, they're not intellectual reasons, they're personal reasons. And so, 
someone might say, in fact, I, I watched a video this week with an, with an atheist guy, and he was explaining why he was an atheist, and this is exactly what he said, almost verbatim. He said, because God didn't do something that he thought that God should do. If he was God, that's what he would have done, and God didn't do what he would have done if he was God, and so therefore he rejects God. But I want you to think about this, just on a, even on a logical level. One of the greatest proofs that God actually exists and he's not just a fragment of your imagination that you created, that you made up, one of the greatest proofs for that is that he doesn't do what you would do if you were him. You see, here's the thing. If he's an independent being other than you, any independent being other than you is sometimes going to do things that you don't like or that you wouldn't do or you would have done it differently or, or maybe it even offends you. Let me put it this way. If I were to invent a God, if you were to invent a God, then I would invent a God who thinks just like me, share all my opinions on everything, on every single subject, on politics, on everything. And I would never be offended by that God, or I'd never be offended, I'd never disagree with anything he said or did, because it would be exactly what I would have said or done too. He would, he would, say, he would never say anything that challenged me, uh, or challenged my thinking or behavior. He would only ever affirm me and everything I already thought and did. That's the kind of God I would make up. And so if you're a person who says, right, I, I won't believe in God because he di- doesn't do things the way that I think that a God should do things, you really have to ask yourself this question. Do you want to worship the real God or do you want to just worship a God who's just like you, only more powerful? Because in that case, you're actually dangerously close to worshiping yourself and doing what the Israelites did here, which is rejecting the real God in order to create your own God who does things the way that you want them done. It's very common for people, you hear this a lot, that people say things like, you know, I'm not into organized religion. I have my own ideas about God. Basically, I like to take the best beliefs and best practices from different religions and kind of put them all together, and I create my own uh, belief, which is kind of a hybrid of all the other ones. Sounds like a good idea on the outset maybe, right? But let me, let's think through this a little bit more. Let me tell you what's dangerous about approaching God like that. Because inevitably, when you do that, you will inevitably choose the things that you like and you will reject the things that you don't like. And the only criteria on what you will uh, affirm and what you will reject in different uh, religions or in different faiths will be your own preferences. Like you'll say, well, I'm not comfortable with this particular doctrine, maybe a doctrine about hell or a doctrine about sin, but I really like this doctrine. In other words, the only criteria is your own preferences and what you're comfortable with. In the end, think about what you're worshiping. You are literally worshiping your own preferences, your own opinions. But the very fact that God doesn't do things the way that you would have done them if you were him, that's a major sign that you're dealing with the real God, with an independent being who is not you. So a third indicator now of an idol in your life is this. It's something for which you are willing to be incredibly generous. It's something which you're willing to make sacrifices for. Notice what these people do in verse 3 of chapter 32. We read that they made this God, and in order to make it, they had to give all of their gold jewelry and earrings and all the stuff that they had, they gave it to Aaron to be melted down and made into this golden calf. That's a lot of money. So, you know, here's the thing. We're always very generous towards the things that we love most, the things that we're most devoted to. So here we have Aaron 
He's making this idol. He's fashioning it with a tool. That's also very important because we're going to read about that again later. And so then he sees that the people really love this thing that he made, and so he builds an altar in front of it. We talked about this last week. There's one thing that an altar is for. An altar is for making sacrifices. It's for making blood sacrifices. And Aaron says, tomorrow we will feast. And so tomorrow, it says the very next day, they got up early in the morning and they made sacrifices to these new gods. And it says that the people sat down to eat, that they're eating the meat of the sacrifice that they made on the altar, and they drank and they rose up to play. You say, well, that sounds good. It sounds like a you know, nice uh, dinner meeting. What did they play? It was a Scrabble tournament. Maybe they had some beach volleyball there uh, in the sand. Unfortunately, that's not what it means. This phrase, rising up to play, is a euphemism. It's a kind of a dignified way to talk about something undignified. And in every place it's used, this is a euphemism which refers to sexual play. This was a, I mean, I don't want to be crass, but it was a drunken orgy. And so the Lord would never have approved of something like this, but now they've cast him aside and they've created a new God who conveniently enough, is totally cool with them doing something like this and uh, doing something more to their liking. So when faced with the test of patience, here's what we see. Rather than turning to the Lord and, and letting this delay deepen them, they let it derail them. A- an opportunity presented itself for them to create their own gods according to their own way of thinking, and they did. And, it, and ultimately, it was merely just a projection of themselves and their own thoughts and preferences. And the big question we have to ask when we read this is, is, of course, what is Aaron doing? Like, how is it that Aaron just goes along with this? Like, they're like, hey, Aaron, could you make us some idols? And he's like, totally, I'll make them for you right now. How did that happen? Well, that brings us to the second test that we see in this text here, and that is the test of popularity. I wonder if Aaron was tired at this point of being in his brother's shadow. After all, he's the older brother. And, and after all, he does all the heavy lifting, really, and then Moses gets all the credit for it. And his whole life, it's kind of been this way, right? Like, Moses got all the attention. Remember, Moses was the one who they had to put in the river, and he ends up getting saved in the river, and then he grows up in the household of Pharaoh where Aaron has to live as a peasant, in the, as a slave. And so he's been in the shadow of his brother all this time. But today, finally, things are different. There's a new opportunity that's presented itself. Moses isn't here anymore, and who knows if Moses is ever going to come back. And I wonder if Aaron had often thought that if I was only given the chance, man, I could be a much better leader than Moses was. You see, Moses, oh, the people respect Moses, but they don't love Moses because, you know, Moses doesn't really listen to him, at least not the way that I do, Aaron might have thought. And now when this opportunity has presented itself for Aaron to be the leader, to be the hero, to give the people what they want. And I think there's a hint in the text about how Aaron might have justified this in his mind. In verse 2, we read that the people asked Aaron to make them gods in the plural, right? So gods with a lowercase g in the plural. And so Aaron makes this golden image and the people see it in verse 4 and they say, these are your gods, O Israel, again, in the plural. But then when Aaron speaks in verse 5, he says this, tomorrow we shall have a feast to the Lord. And if you notice in the text there, Lord is in all caps, which means that that is the name Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the personal name of God that he gave to Moses when he met him at the burning bush. It was a name that the Jewish people considered so holy they wouldn't even write it down. And so they would just write the letters and they wrote out the word Lord, but in capital letters. And whenever you see that, you know that that's the personal name of God. In other words, here's what Aaron's doing. He's saying, 
okay, we've got this, we've got this golden calf, but tomorrow we're going to sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, here's what Aaron's doing, it seems. It seems that he's saying, well, we can still worship the Lord. We'll just worship him through the golden calf. Like the golden calf will just help us to help the people to worship the Lord. You know, we won't take away Yahweh. We'll just add this golden calf. And then everybody wins, right? Because, you know, these people are used to stuff in Egypt. I mean, they're having a hard time wrapping their heads around this concept of, of one God who, who is invisible and can't be seen. So, so maybe this golden calf can help them out, and we'll just worship Yahweh through it. I'm sure that Aaron justified this in his mind somehow because that's our tendency. We always try to justify the wrong things that we do as a way of convincing ourselves that our motives are pure. But clearly Aaron is uh, falling for this opportunity to be liked and accepted and celebrated by the people. And it's a great example of what we talked about earlier, how one of the ways to recognize an idol in your life is to look at the areas of your life where you're willing to go against your own deeply held beliefs and convictions in order to get something you want. For Aaron, it would seem that the opinions of the people were, were an idol in his life. I read an interesting quote this week. It said this, Having your identity caught up in what other people think about you is a toxic combination of worshiping them and worshiping yourself. And let me tell you why it's so toxic. Because if you're living for the approval of others and other people's opinions, you'll never be really free to just be yourself. You can never really be open and honest. You can never really let your guard down and let people know you for who you really are. You'll never be free to let people really know what you think or believe because if you do that, you run the risk of them no longer liking you or approving you or accepting you. In other words, you become a slave to other people's opinions. You see, that's why the message of the gospel is so incredibly freeing because here's what the gospel says. The gospel says that God knows you completely. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows all of your flaws, and yet he loves you fully. He loves you fully. I think many of us believe that we can either be fully known or fully loved, but not both. Because if somebody really knew everything about us and they could not possibly love us, and if they loved us, well, it could only be because they don't really know everything about us. But see, here's the message of the gospel, that God fully knows you and loves you completely at the same time. And this is exactly what we've been saying throughout Exodus as we've been studying here. That if you worship or serve anything other than God alone, then you will be a slave to that thing. And the only way to be truly free is to serve him and no other. So the test of fame. That's the third test we see here, the test of fame. So here's what's happening. All this is happening down in the valley. Moses is up on the mountain, and God tells him while he's up on the mountain what's going on down in the valley. And God is so upset by this, he tells Moses in verse 7, your people who you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. This is like an angry parent, right, who says to the spouse, your son, do you know what your son did? Well, it's, it's their son too, but you know, you know how it is. It's as if almost God wants to disown Israel. Like he's fed up, he's done. He's saying, Moses, if you want them, you can have them because I'm done. Every time I turn around, these people are turning their backs on me after everything I've done for them. In verse 10, he says, now leave me alone, Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I might consume them in order that I might make a great nation out of you. Do you understand what God is offering to Moses here? It's pretty incredible. 
What he's saying is, Moses, I'm, I'm done. Like, I'm fed up. I'm through. After everything I've done for these people, they turn away from me every chance they get. And so it's judgment time. And that's totally fair because you don't remember in chapter 24, they entered into this covenant where they said, hey, if we break this covenant, if we do anything against this covenant, then God, you can kill us. Totally legit. And God says, Moses, you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put your hands in your pockets and do nothing, and I'm going to judge the people, and I'm going to start over fresh with you. In other words, Moses, you're going to be the new Abraham. You're going to be the new patriarch. Forget about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's going to be you, Moses. From now on, when people talk about, the, they won't talk about the children of Abraham when they talk about Israel. They'll talk about the children of Moses. You understand what a tempting thing this would have been for Moses? This is an ultimate offer of fame and glory for generations to come. All he has to do in order to get it is nothing. That's it. Just nothing. He doesn't have to sin. He doesn't have to do anything unethical. All he has to do is not intercede on behalf of the people. What an incredible opportunity. So what does Moses do? Well, that's where we left off reading. Let's continue from verse 11. Rather than doing nothing, Moses decides to do something. And it says in verse 11, he implored the Lord. He begged. He pleaded. He said, Lord, Don't try and pawn these people off on me. They're not my people. Don't forget, Lord, these are your people. Notice he says that there. He says, God, don't you forget the promises you made to them. You made them some promises. Don't forget this too. For your own name's sake, for your glory, for your reputation, you should show them mercy. And it says in verse 14, and so the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing to the people. Now, a lot of people read this verse and they find it, disturbing confusing uh, i don't know they they wonder so wait is this saying that god changed his mind i mean because before it was like god saying i'm gonna do this and then moses intercedes and god says okay i'm not gonna do it so people say was is god changing his mind is that something that god does he changes his mind but here's the other thing to add this into the mix in numbers chapter 23 verse 19 it literally says this Again, remember, Exodus and, Mo- Exodus and Numbers, both written by Moses, okay? Numbers uh, chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. So some people would look at these two passages and they say, well, they seem to be saying contradictory things. How do we understand this? Well, here's how we understand it. It's, it's pretty simple, but it's important to understand. Passages like this, we need to understand that they're using what we call anthropomorphic language, which in other words means attributing human characteristics to something that's not human. God's not human. He's divine. But of course, we're human and we only have human vocabulary and we understand things in the way that we understand things. And so in order to explain God's actions from his perspective, Moses sometimes speaks of them in human terms because that's what we understand and know. What did it look like to Moses? It looked to Moses like um, God decided that he, was, he said he was going to do something and then he decided not to after Moses interceded. In other words, from Moses' perspective, it looked like God changed his mind. Did God actually change his mind? I don't believe so. I believe that God knew that this is how it was going to play out all along. In fact, I believe that God himself is the one who gave Moses the desire to intercede and knew how this whole thing was going to play out. Why go through this whole thing? Why go through all this drama with Moses? I believe that it was to do a work in Moses' heart, to bring him to a place of of reaching out and expressing love for the people. I think for our sakes, God wants us to see the heart of Moses, a man who would give up fame and glory because he truly cared about the people more than he cared about himself. 
When the opportunity presented itself for Moses to make himself great at the expense of others, he didn't do it. And that is love. Let me tell you that. That is love. In verse 15, we'll go on. It gets even better. But in verse 15, Moses and Joshua, they were up on the mountain together. They come down from the mountain carrying the two tablets of the Ten Commandments engraved on them. And Moses gets down near the people and he sees this big drunken party going on in the golden calf and he throws down the two stone tablets as a dramatic way of saying, you have broken these. You have broken the covenant that you made with God. And he went down to the golden calf. It says that he took the golden calf and he ground it up into dust and he threw that dust into their drinking water and he made them drink it. And you might wonder, why would he do that? Again, I don't want to be crude. But this is why, because it would then pass through their bodies and it would end up covered in excrement. It was basically the ultimate way of destroying this idol and defaming it. And then in verse 21 he asks Aaron, Aaron, what did you do? How did this happen? And Aaron says, well, you know, it was kind of the weirdest thing. Uh, I had all this gold, and then I threw it in the fire, and then out popped this idol. I mean, it's kind of, kind of a miracle, Moses. I mean, if you want to look at it like that, I mean, well, what do you want me to do? Uh, and, well, of course, we know that's not true because we read earlier in the chapter that he fashioned it with a carving tool out of his own hands. So Moses, in verse 24, he calls the people to repent of what they've done. And he says, choose today if you will repent and turn to the Lord and receive mercy and live, or will you refuse to repent and will you accept the judgment for breaking the covenant, which we all know, we saw in chapter 24, is death. And so some people choose to, to side with God and repent and others don't. And we read at the, the end of that section, 3,000 people were killed that day. Because they refused to repent. They chose rather to receive the punishment for breaking the covenant, which was death. Now remember, there were about 2 million people in Israel at this time. 2 million people. So from 2 million people, you have 3,000 who died. That's a very small percentage of the people, really. Now someone recently asked me, they were reading this story ahead of time, and they said, well, tell me this, why didn't Aaron get killed? It would seem that the answer to that question is this. Aaron must have been among those who repented and turned back to the Lord and received mercy. It was only a stubborn few. Knowing exactly what the consequence would be, they were the ones who died. Out of 2 million people, 3,000. But still, I mean, it's still incredible that someone would knowingly choose death rather than turning and repenting and coming to God and, and receiving the mercy and forgiveness that God was offering them. But yet, it's much more common than you would think. People do it today with God all the same. God offers grace and mercy, forgiveness and redemption through Jesus, and yet many people refuse it. They say, thanks but no thanks for various reasons. And you can't help but look at that and say, why? How, why? How could you reject the love of God? Why would you reject the free gift of eternal life? And yet people do. Starting in verse 30. Gotta get back to my spot, sorry. Starting in verse 30. We see the most incredible act of love in this section, in my opinion. It says in verse 30, uh, chapter 32, verse 30, it says that Moses said to the people, I'm going to go now and talk to God and see if I can make atonement for your sins. And so he goes up and he talks to God and he says to God, God, would you forgive them? And then he says in verse 32, if you will, forgive their sins. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. Do you understand what Moses is doing? He's offering to be blotted out of God's book of life. He's offering to give up his life and his eternal salvation. 
if that could somehow rescue the people. In other words, he's offering to sacrifice himself as a substitute. He's offering to be condemned so that the people can be saved. That's incredible. I mean, frankly, I don't know if I could do that. Maybe only for someone that I truly loved and cared about. Then in that case, maybe. But that's exactly the point. That's how much Moses loves these people. That's how much he cares about them. He's willing to give up his own salvation that they might be saved. Moses cares about these people in spite of what they've done, even against him. Paul the Apostle said a similar thing in Romans chapter 9, talking about the Jewish people. He said, For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's talking about the Jewish people. He's saying, I want so much for them to be saved that I would be willing to go to hell. Now remember, these are the same Jewish people who beat Paul, imprisoned Paul, made false accusations against Paul. They tried to kill Paul. And yet, in spite of what they've done to him, he has so much love for them in his heart that he says, I would be willing to be damned if only they could be saved. Where does that kind of love come from? Where does that kind of heart come from? Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper, he said, greater love has no one than this, that someone would give their life for their friends. And that's precisely what he did for us. See, Moses made the offer. Paul shared the sentiment. But it was Jesus who actually did that action. He gave his life as a ransom for ours. He took our curse upon himself on the cross so that we could receive the blessing, the forgiveness, the eternal life, the redemption, the grace, the forgiveness, the relationship with God. This is the message of the gospel. You and I have sinned and we've fallen short. And because of that, we deserve to pay the price. But God sent his son, Jesus, to pay that price for us in our place by giving him as a substitute for us. He was accursed so that we could be saved. He was blotted out so that our names could be written in the book of life. And when you really understand that, when you really see who God is and how much he loves you, that he loves you that much, when you really get that, then you stop seeing God as useful and you begin to see God as beautiful. And that drives you to worship him and serve him and live for him. Would you please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing picture of your grace And this amazing picture of this sentiment that Moses had, but Lord, that ultimately you are the one who carried it out. Lord, thank you that you were blotted out so that our names could be written in the book of life. And Lord, as I I reflect on this, I think about these 3,000 out of the 2 million who refused the mercy that was offered to them and chose rather to just take the judgment. And that baffles us so much. How could someone do that? But yet there are many who do it even today. And so, Lord, today I pray for anyone who's in that same boat who says, you know, I, I've been offered forgiveness and grace and new life in Jesus, but I haven't received it for whatever reason. Lord, I pray that if anyone is in that situation, that today, even now, they would say right where they're at, Lord, I receive your grace. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your mercy. I thank you, Lord, that you took the judgment I deserve so that I could receive mercy and grace. Thank you for the cross. But I pray that all of us today as we look to this, that we would see who you are and that we would see you as beautiful, not primarily as useful, and that we would give you our lives and our hearts and live for you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.